Chapter 10, The Conflict Over the Trinity in Church History and the Current Debate. In the 5th century, Christianity had conquered paganism and paganism had infected Christianity. That's a quotation from Macaulay. Historical anticipation of the present-day debate about pre-existence. The problem of pre-existence, and therefore of the Trinity, and its effect on the nature of the Saviour has had a long history in the Church. In recent years, it's been exercising the minds of a number of prominent biblical scholars who have wondered whether our legacy from the Church Fathers does less than justice to the unitary monotheism professed by the Apostles. And as given to us in Mark 12, 29-34, John 5, verse 44, John 17, 3, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6, Ephesians 4, 6, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and so on. The question has also persisted as to how far the Jesus of the creeds may be considered a genuinely human person. See, for example, Thomas Hart's book, To Know and Follow Jesus, and the well-known book, God Was in Christ, by Donald Bailey, written in 1961. A historical sketch will help to set the scene for the contemporary debate. We note first that Justin Martyr, around 114 to 165, was one of the first of the post-biblical writers to develop the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ though he acknowledged that not all of his fellow believers shared this view. He confessed to the Jew Trypho that, and I quote, Jesus may still be the Christ of God, though I should not be able to prove his pre-existence as the Son of God who made all things. For though I should not prove that he had pre-existed, it would be right to say that in this respect only I have been deceived, and not to deny that he is the Christ, though it should appear that he was born man of men. For there are some of our race who admit that he is Christ, while holding him to be man of men, with whom I do not agree. That's the end of the quotation from Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trypho, chapters 48 and 49. Trypho, the Jew, speaking as one familiar with Jewish expectations about the Messiah, adds his voice to those who, quote, think that Jesus was a man and being chosen by God was anointed Christ. He considers this a more probable opinion than Justin's. The Trypho may here be referring to an adoptionist Christology, that's to say, Jesus became Son of God only at his baptism, as distinct from Luke's conception Christology, Jesus is the Son of God by virtue of his miraculous conception, Luke 1.35. It seems clear from his debate with Justin, that belief in pre-existence is not, at this stage, 
the universally held tenet of, quote, orthodoxy, which in later times it became. It's also remarkable that, quote, Justin nowhere asserts that the Father, Son, and Spirit constitute one God, as became the custom in later ages. Strictly speaking, Justin was a Unitarian, as were the Orthodox Fathers generally of his time. That is, they believed the Son to be a being really distinct from the Father and inferior to him. For example, Alvin Lamson, in his book, The Church of the First Three Centuries, speaks of the common view of the time of Justin Martyr. Justin, however, did set the direction for later development towards Trinitarianism by asserting the literal pre-existence of Jesus. Trinitarianism was not the belief of the post-apostolic period, at least for 80 years, as is shown by the admission of the New Schafherzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, that in the period 100 to 180 AD, and I quote, there is nothing to show that at that time Christ was regarded as the actual Godhead. That's from an article in the New Schafherzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge by Harnack. The title of the item was Monarchianism. A further indication of dispute over John's Gospel and preexistence is found in the writings of the Greek church father Epiphanius, around 310 to 403 AD, who was interested in identifying, quote, heresy. He refers to a group of Gentile believers, the A. Logi, around 180 AD, who had been accused of rejecting the Gospel of John. Joseph Priestley ventures the opinion that the A. Logi were criticized by Epiphanius because, and I quote, they explained the Logos in the introduction to John's Gospel in a manner different from him. Thus, the crucial matter of the meaning of Logos in John's prologue was already the cause of uncertainty. The resolution of the question about the nature of pre-existence in John in favor of belief in a pre-existent son was to have a profound and lasting effect on what later became the orthodox Christology of the creeds. The doctrine of the Trinity cannot be sustained unless it can be shown that Jesus existed as the eternal Son of God before his birth. Protests against a particular reading of John, which set up tension between him and the synoptic view of Christ, emerge again. Dynamic monarchianism. Before long, a reaction set in against the evident threat to monotheism posed by the introduction of a so-called second god in the form of the pre-existing Christ. Justin and other early writers were steeped in philosophy 
before becoming Christians. It was all too easy for them to indulge their capacity for speculation and to read John's prologue as if it agreed with a Greek view of the universe. The apologists of the second century were more familiar with Platonic cosmology than they were with biblical soteriology, and hence they stretched the Christian doctrine to fit a philosophical Procrustean mold. They conceived God as above and beyond all essence, ineffable, incommunicable, impassable, exalted beyond any commerce with matter, time, or space. This Platonic God put forth the Word by an act of His will to be His intermediary for creation, revelation, and redemption. This doctrine construes the Son as pre-existent. That's a quotation from William Charles Robinson, Jesus Christ is Jehovah from the Evangelical Quarterly of 1933. For the development of Trinitarianism in the post-biblical period, see also Mark M. Mattison in his book, The Making of a Tradition, written in 1991. The reaction came when a group of believers protested that the Godhead was strictly one, a so-called monarchy. Theodotus the Tanner raised the issue of the humanity of Jesus in Rome around 190 to 200 AD. Appealing to the strictly monotheistic statement of Paul in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, he maintained that Jesus was not entitled to be called God. His successor, another Theodotus, continued to champion a view of Jesus as a man supernaturally conceived. Some thirty years later, Artemis, holding the same so-called dynamic monarchian understanding of the Godhead, contended against the Roman bishop that the ancient Christology which monarchians were defending was being distorted by the official church. Paul of Samosata, the issue of the nature of pre-existence surfaces next in the theology of Paul of Samosata, bishop of Antioch in the middle of the third century. Though Paul was officially condemned for heresy in 268 AD, modern writers have appreciated the force of his protest against so-called orthodoxy. I quote, Our theology has been cast in a scholastic mold, wrote Archbishop of Temple. We are in need of, and we are being gradually forced into, a theology based on psychology. The transition, I fear, will not be without much pain, but nothing can prevent it. Archbishop Temple went on to say that, quote, we must not forget that there was a very early attempt made by Paul of Samosata. He saw serious difficulty in the formulation of the Church's belief concerning Christ, 
So long as this was expressed in terms of substance, and he tried to express it in terms of will. From Archbishop Temple's book, Foundations, written in 1913. Another party to the dialogue, Professor Bethune Baker, expressed his conviction that, quote, Paul of Samosata had behind him a genuine historical tradition to which, in our reconstruction of doctrine, we must return. That was a quotation from F.W. Green in an essay, The Later Development of the Doctrine of the Trinity, in a book entitled Essays on the Trinity and the Incarnation, written in 1928. Lufs, the historian of Christology, came to the conclusion that Paul of Samosata, and I quote, is one of the most interesting theologians of the pre-Nicene period because he stands in the line of a tradition which had its roots in a period before the deluge of Hellenism swept over the church. Compare with that the remark of Canon Googe that, and I quote, when the Greek and Roman mind instead of the Hebrew mind came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. That's in an essay entitled The Calling of the Jews in Collected Essays on Judaism and Christianity. Paul of Samosata's understanding of the Logos was that it had no independent existence apart from God. In other words, that there was no Son until the conception of Jesus. A widespread familiarity with this same tradition is remarkably confirmed by a casual observation of Origen in his commentary on John. He stated that there were and I quote, numerous Christians who employed only the name of the Logos for the pre-existent Christ without its philosophical connotation and only in the sense of an utterance of the Father, which came to expression in a son when Jesus was conceived. Compare with that Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. They did not ascribe to the Logos a separate hypostasis or individuality. It is interesting that Tertullian, around 155 to 230, translates Logos by the word sermo or speech. He then notes that, quote, it is the simple use of our people to say of John 1 verse 1, that the word of revelation was with God. He himself urged that Logos should be understood as whatever you think, and speech as whatever you understand. Referring to a time before creation, he adds that, quote, although God had not yet sent forth his word, he had it both with and in reason within himself. 
That's a quotation from Tertullian's Ad Praxius, chapter 5. It is clear that the word word, logos, was not yet understood as the Son pre-existing eternally, as in later orthodoxy. Green concedes that Paul of Samosata's doctrine of the Trinity, and that is not the Trinity as later formulated, was, and I quote, at least as scriptural as that of Origen, and it was based upon a sound and widespread tradition in the church. That's from F.W. Green's Essays on the Trinity in the Incarnation. He then goes on to make the remarkable assertion that, and I quote, it cannot be too strongly emphasized that the Antiochian tradition knew nothing of the term son as applied to the pre-existent logos in whatever sense used. By the word son, they always meant the historical Christ. Luf's remarks that the transference of the conception of son to the pre-existent logos by the Alexandrian theologians was the most important factor in the establishment of the pluralistic character of Christian doctrine. Speaking of Jesus as the pre-existent Son, was the fatal shift which removed the Savior from the category of human being and launched the series of fearful disputes about Christ. Once the beginning of Jesus ceased to be at his conception, speculation ran wild. The unity of the Godhead was threatened, and Jesus was no longer the, quote, man-messiah predicted by the Hebrew Bible. A reconstruction which confines the term son to Jesus as the human Christ would seem to have a firm basis in early church history, as well as in the Bible itself. It is heartening to find William Temple supporting a more authentic understanding of the nature of pre-existence in John. I quote from William Temple, The Johannine identification of Christ with Logos had originally meant, in the writings of the evangelist John, quote, You believe in a single world principle, but you do not know its character. We do. It was made flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The late distinguished scholar of the Bible, F.F. F. Bruce, seems to hold a view of pre-existence which leaves open the question as to whether in John 1 verse 1 the Son pre-existed. He says, I quote, On the pre-existence question, one can at least accept the pre-existence of the eternal word, lowercase w, or wisdom of God, which, or he says in parenthesis, should it be who? 
became incarnate in Jesus. But whether any New Testament writer believed in Jesus' separate conscious existence as a, quote, second divine person before his incarnation is not so clear. That's from correspondence with me in June of 1981. Bruce's frank question is most revealing. If no New Testament writer did in fact believe that the Son of God was a pre-existent second divine person, it must follow that no New Testament writer believed in the Trinity. Photinus and the Photinians Objection to the pre-existence of Jesus emerges again in the 4th century Bishop Photinus of Sirmium. His understanding of Jesus was probably identical with that of Paul of Samosata. Photinus maintained that the sonship of Jesus began at his supernatural conception. Several councils condemned him for saying that the Son existed before Mary only in the foreknowledge and purpose of God. The church historian Sozomen described Photinus as acknowledging that, quote, there was one God Almighty by whose own word, lowercase l, all things were created. Yet Photinus would not admit that, quote, the generation and existence of the Son was before all ages. On the contrary, he alleged that Christ derived his existence from Mary, a tradition which denied the literal pre-existence of the Son survived in Spain and southern Gaul until at least the 7th century. Potinians, along with certain followers of a bishop, Bonosus, who denied the pre-existence of Christ, were condemned as heretics by the Synod of Toledo in 675. See for this reference Mark Madison's article Biblical Unitarianism from the Early Church Through the Middle Ages from a journal from the Radical Reformation, a testimony to biblical Unitarianism, the winter issue of 1992. A wealth of information in regard to all aspects of the Trinitarian controversy can be found in this journal, published from 1991 to 2000. Michael Servetus and Adam Pastor. The Spaniard Michael Servetus 1511 to 1553, was one of the most articulate exponents of anti, that's before, Nicene Christology. His underlying thesis was that the fall of the church dated from the disastrous intervention by Constantine into the affairs of Christian doctrine at Nicaea. He argued that acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Messianic Son of God should be the basis of a reconstructed Christology. 
The sun, he claimed, came into being at his conception in Mary. He then dismissed as philosophical Greek speculation all talk of a pre-mundane so-called eternal generation of the sun. He saw the Holy Spirit as the power and personality of God extended to creation, not a distinct person of the Godhead. Servetus emphasizes that the sun may be thought of as eternal only with respect to God's intention to generate him at a later moment in history. That statement is found in G.H. Williams' book, The Radical Reformation, written in 1962. As is well known, Servetus paid for his so-called heretical Christology with his life. He was burned at the stake in Geneva at the instigation of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant reformer John Calvin on October the 27th, 1553. This tragic episode is a grim reminder of the terrible violence and misguided zeal that has marked some so-called magisterial forms of professing Christianity. I note that for details of Calvin's savage treatment of Servetus, one can read R. H. Bainton in his book, Hunted Heretic, The Life and Death of Michael Servetus, and also Stefan Zweig in his book, the Right to Heresy, written in 1951. The issue of pre-existence was a critical concern among Dutch Anabaptists of the 16th century in the dispute between Menno Simons and a fellow Anabaptist, Adam Pastor, around 1500 to 1570. A former monk, originally named Rudolf Martens, Pastor was unquestionably, and I quote, the most brilliant man and scholar in the entire Dutch Anabaptist community of his day. So said H.E. Dosker in his book, The Dutch Anabaptists, written in 1921. Pastor's Christology anticipates contemporary questioning of the nature of pre-existence, and a similar Christology has emerged in the work of the 20th century Dutch theologians Hendrikus Berkhoff and Ellen Flesemann. See, for example, Hendrikus Berkhoff, Christian Faith, and Ellen Flesemann, A Faith for Today, written in 1980. Berkhoff and Ellen Flesemann disavowed Orthodox Trinitarianism, as did Adam Pastor, and in 1547 at Emden, Pastor was immediately excommunicated by Simons and Obey Phillips, as we see from Pastor's book, Difference Between True Doctrine and False Doctrine. 
Pastor denied the pre-existence of Christ. Not surprisingly, Sandius and other Polish anti-Trinitarian writers referred to Pastor as, quote, the man in our fatherland who had been the first and able writer in that direction. That's to say the view that the word, lowercase w, of John 1, 1, was not a person, but God's creative word or will personified. H. E. Doska remarks that, quote, when we read Adam Pastor, we have to rub our eyes to see whether we are awake or dreaming. What he has to say is so startlingly modern that it bewilders the reader, and we wake up to see that not all modernity is modern. That's a quotation from Doska's book, The Dutch Anabaptists. Adam Pastor is critical of Menno's and Melchior Hoffman's doctrine that the word only passed through Mary without coming at all in touch with her body. This would make Mary a kind of surrogate mother who did not really conceive Jesus as Scripture states. Such a Christology could hardly escape a charge of docetism and Gnosticism. Adam Pastor insists that Christ is truly human and the descendant of David, supernaturally conceived or begotten. His view would seem to coincide well with what Raymond Brown described as that of Luke and Matthew. It is certain that the Polish Anabaptists a century later claimed Pastor as the first man who had clearly articulated their views about pre-existence. Without doubt, Adam Pastor anticipates the modern discussion about the humanity of Jesus when he defines the Logos not as a pre-existing person, but as the self-expressive activity of God putting forth his energy in creation, in revealing truth, and generating the Messiah. For a fuller account of Adam Pastor, please see A. H. Newman, Adam Pastor, Anti-Trinitarian, Anti-Pedo-Baptist, in Papers of the American Society of Church History. See also my article, that's to say Anthony Buzzard's article, entitled Adam Pastor, Anti-Trinitarian Anabaptist, in a journal from the Radical Reformation, spring of 1994. John Biddle, father of English anti-Trinitarian, who lived from 1615 to 1662, educated in classics and philosophy at Oxford, embarked on, quote, an impartial search of the scriptures after he began to question received church doctrine. From 1641 to 1645, Biddle was headmaster of Crypt School in Gloucester. It was during this period that his close study of the New Testament caused him to become disaffected with the doctrine of the Trinity. The matter was of such serious nature that the magistrates issued an order for his arrest and imprisonment. Following a debate with Archbishop Usher of chronology fame, John Biddle summed up the result of his study of early Christianity. 
the fathers of the first two centuries, or thereabouts, when the judgments of Christians were yet free and not enslaved with the determinations of councils, asserted the Father only to be the one God. Biddle complained that the Greek philosophical language of the creeds was, quote, first hatched by the subtlety of Satan in the heads of Platonists to pervert the worship of the true God. Parliament lost no time in ordering that Biddle's work be burned. In 1648, the British government passed what has been called the Draconian Ordinance for the Punishment of Death of Blasphemies and Heresies, aimed at Biddle's claim that Trinitarian doctrine introduces, and I quote, three gods and so subverts the unity of God so frequently inculcated in Scripture. The Athanasian Creed is no answer to the problem. And I quote again, For who is there, if at least he dare make use of reason in his religion, who seeth not that this is as ridiculous as if one should say, Peter is an apostle, James an apostle, John an apostle, yet there are not three apostles, but one apostle. In 1655, Biddle was committed to Newgate Prison for, quote, publicly denying that Jesus Christ was the Almighty or the Most High God. Supporters of Biddle were quick to point out that all Christians must be considered guilty of death by Parliament's latest attempt to suppress anti-Trinitarianism, for, and I quote, He that saith that Christ died, saith that Christ was not God, for God could not die. But every Christian saith that Christ died, therefore every Christian saith that Christ was not God. A petition for the release of Biddle described him as and I quote, a man, though differing from most of us in many great matters of faith, yet by reason of his diligent study of the Holy Scripture, sober and peaceable conversation, which some of us have intimate and good knowledge of, we cannot but judge every way capable of the liberty promised in the government. Although only 47 years old, Biddle had spent nearly 10 years of his life in prison for his insistence that God was a single person. He died in prison in 1662, and I quote, a victim of odium theologicum and the filthy conditions of the place in which he was lodged. A sympathetic biographer wrote of Biddle's, quote, great zeal for promoting holiness of life and manners, for this was always his end and design in what he taught. He valued not his doctrines for speculation, but for practice. I note that information for this section is taken from H. J. McLaughlin's Socinianism in 17th century England, written in 1951. John Milton, Sir Isaac Newton, John Locke. 
The celebrated British poet John Milton, 1608 to 1674, is less well known for his treatise on Christian doctrine, the contents of which were lost to the public for 150 years after his death. Rediscovered in 1823, the treatise demonstrated Milton's biblical arguments against Orthodox Trinitarianism. Milton desired only, and I quote, to communicate the result of my inquiries to the world at large. If, as God is my witness, it be with a friendly and benignant feeling towards mankind, that I readily give as wide a circulation as possible to what I esteem my best and richest possession. I hope to meet with a candid reception from all parties, even though many things should be brought to light which will at once be seen to differ from certain received opinions. Milton continues with a plea to, quote, all lovers of truth, that they, quote, prove all things in the light of Scripture. His only desire is to defend the Bible against tradition. I quote from John Milton, For my own part, I adhere to the Holy Scriptures alone. I follow no other heresy or sect. I had not even read of the works of the heretics, so-called, when the mistakes of those who are reckoned for orthodox and their incautious handling of Scripture first taught me to agree with their opponents whenever these opponents agreed with Scripture. That's a quotation from John Milton's Treatise on Christian Doctrine, published by the British and Foreign Unitarian Association in 1908. Milton builds his anti-Trinitarian case on the explicitly Unitarian creedal statements of the New Testament. His argument is characterized by a tight logic, detailed knowledge of the biblical languages, and some frustration at traditional attempts to avoid Paul's Unitarian statement that, quote, there is no God but the Father. It is wonderful with what futile subtleties or rather with what juggling artifices certain individuals have endeavored to elude or obscure the plain meaning of these passages. John Milton is familiar with the full range of Trinitarian argument, and his reply makes an invaluable contribution to the modern discussion. Sir Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727, and John Locke, 1632 to 1704, are reckoned to be among the finest minds of the 17th century. With Milton, they protested the creation of mystifications which are not found in the Bible. Their arguments are, quote, ultimately logical and commonsensical. So said Christopher Hill, in his book, Milton and the English Revolution, written in 1977. Both maintain that the essence of Christianity is to acknowledge 
Jesus as the Messiah, not God. See, for example, John Locke's The Reasonableness of Christianity as Delivered in the Scriptures, written in 1695. The contemporary debate about pre-existence. The issue of pre-existence was the focus of John Knox's illuminating essay on the humanity and divinity of Christ. His major point is that, and I quote, the assertion of Christ's pre-existence placed a strain, so to speak, upon the humanity of Jesus, which it was unable to bear. That's from John Knox's book, The Humanity and Divinity of Christ, written in 1987. He then goes on to maintain that in the Gospel of John, the humanity of Christ is, in the formal sense, unambiguously and strongly affirmed, but in actual fact has been so transformed by the divinity surrounding it on all sides, as it were, as no longer to be manhood in any ordinary sense. With these words, he reflects his objection to John's portrait of Jesus. But does John really contradict himself? Only, we submit, when interpreted by the later creeds. John Knox sets the terms of a debate which has continued with particular interest in the Christology of John and the nature of pre-existence. If indeed John thought of Jesus as personally pre-existing as Son, does not this automatically negate his real humanity? Knox is convinced that it does. I quote, we can have the humanity without the pre-existence, and we can have the pre-existence without the humanity. There is absolutely no way of having both. John Knox believes that, and I quote, it is simply incredible that a divine person should have become a fully and normally human person, that is, if he was also to continue to be, in his essential identity, the same person. The traditional picture of Jesus as the capital I incarnation of a pre-existing son is an acute problem for Knox. He views Orthodox Christology as, quote, half story and half dogma, a compound of mythology and philosophy, of poetry and logic, as difficult to define as to defend. This is true of the patristic Christology generally, and therefore of the formal Christology we have inherited. These concerns have recently been tackled by a number of distinguished theologians showing that the ancient problem of the nature of the divine and human in Jesus 
is as alive as ever. Knox considers the development towards a pre-existent Christ to be a distortion involving, whether we like it or not, a denial of the full reality of Jesus' humanity. He points out that the protestations of the Church Fathers, that their Jesus was fully human, are less than convincing because, quote, there are, in the case of words, no less than with other things, ways of taking back with one hand what one has just given with the other. One may affirm the humanity as a formal fact and then proceed so to define or portray it as to deny its reality in any ordinarily accepted sense. In this opinion, he is fully supported by Norman Pittenger, who makes the following important judgment about patristic Christology, which drew its inspiration largely from its reading of John. In my judgment, a fundamental difficulty with the Christology of the patristic age is that while in word it asserted the reality of the humanity of Jesus Christ, in fact it did not take that humanity with sufficient seriousness. Interestingly, he makes an exception by leaving Paul of Samosata out of this criticism. The tendency, he goes on to say, of Christological thinking in the mainstream of what was believed to be, quote, orthodox, was far more heavily weighted on the side of the divinity than the humanity of Jesus. Orthodox Christology, even when the excesses of Alexandrian teaching were somewhat restrained at Chalcedon, in A.D. 451, orthodoxy has tended toward an impersonal humanity, which is, I believe, no genuine humanity at all. Compare with that statement Thomas Hart's book, To Know and Follow Jesus. This seems to be precisely the problem, but John Knox is wrong to blame John for introducing this distortion. John was not guilty of any such dissembling over the humanity of Jesus. Rather, the problem lies with the misunderstanding by the Nicene Church Fathers and some of their predecessors of John's Logos, and thus of the meaning of preexistence. The later official formula that Jesus was, quote, man, but not, Quote, Amen, which remains on the books of traditional Trinitarianism to this day, does not reflect John's intention at all, for there is no conceivable way of being man except by being a man. Compare with this the bewilderment of A.T. Hansen when he reflected on what he had been taught in seminary about the orthodox definition of Jesus. I quote, During my theological formation, I was well instructed in the traditional account of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. I distinctly remember being told 
that the Word of God, when he assumed human nature, assumed impersonal humanity. That Jesus Christ did not possess a human personality. That God became man in Messiah Jesus, but that he did not become a man. Two considerations have persuaded me that this traditional Christology is incredible. That's from Hansen's book, Grace and Truth, a study in the doctrine of the Incarnation, written in 1975. The same perplexity is expressed by Oliver Quick in his book, Doctrines of the Creed, written in 1938. I quote, if we affirm that Jesus was a human person, we are driven either into an impossible conception of a double personality in the incarnate Son of God, or else into the Christology of liberal Protestantism, which we have found to be inadequate. If we deny that Jesus was a human person, we deny by implication the completeness of his manhood, and we stand convicted of the heresy of Apollinarianism. Dr. Raven urges in his book on Apollinarianism that most of those whom the Catholic tradition has honored as doctors of orthodoxy were in fact Apollinarian, though they condemned Apollinarius. Compared with this Norman Pittenger's observation that, quote, Chalcedon failed to prevent a modified Apollinarianism from becoming the orthodoxy of the Middle Ages. In the light of these considerations, it is not difficult to see that the charge of Docetism, the idea that Jesus only seemed to be man, that charge may well be leveled at the orthodox so-called definition of Christ. If being human means being a man, and orthodoxy has to shy away from saying that Jesus was a man, perhaps this criticism should be accepted. But does John demand that we believe in a pre-existent God the Son? Many have thought so, and have clung to the orthodox belief in pre-existence, despite whatever dangerous approximation to Apollinarianism, that's the heresy which denies the humanity of Christ, may be involved. The recent work of three leading scholars shows not only the acute nature of the problem, but suggests the way to a solution a solution which is not new, though credit is not always given by modern writers to those who in earlier church history had already pointed in the right direction. The solution follows the exegesis of John, which we proposed earlier. James Dunn and James Mackey. James Dunn, in an intensive study, set out to examine the question of the Incarnation and thus the Trinity in the New Testament. That was his book, Christology in the Making. He rescues the traditional view 
only in John's Gospel, arguing that Paul and the other New Testament writers think only of a notional or ideal pre-existence of Christ and therefore not of a pre-existent Son. An important contribution to the debate was made by James Mackey in 1983 in his book The Christian Experience of God as Trinity. In a chapter entitled The Problem of the Pre-existence of the Son, he starts by wondering how something can pre-exist itself. I quote, what exactly pre-exists? What else? And in what sense does it do so? He notes that it's exactly these questions which lead to the difficulties involved in traditional incarnational and Trinitarian theology. He notices that exegetes are, quote, often the unconscious victims in the course of their most professional work of quite dogmatic, that's to say, uncritical assumptions. Mackey attempts to track down the real origin of the term pre-existence in relation to Christ, noting that scholars often read it into passages which are traditionally supposed to contain it. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he argues, the term Son of God certainly will not bear the meaning pre-existent son, but properly fits the Old Testament designation of the King of Israel as Son of God. The logical path to alleged pre-existence is a tortuous one. Firstly, the surviving Jewish sources point only to, quote, a kind of notional pre-existence of the Messiah, insofar as his name, that's to say his essence and nature, preceded the formation of light by God on the first day of creation. In Jewish thought, the celestial pre-existence of the Messiah does not affect his humanity. Furthermore, this sort of pre-existence, he says, is part and parcel of the revelation model in human imagining by which God, who is not bound by our time, had in mind in eternity, or before anything else was created, the one who was the key to all existence, who would bring all to consummation, and for whom, in whom, and through whom, all could therefore be said to be created. James Mackey goes on to make the important point that John's description of Jesus as monoyenis, or unique, only begotten, does not imply the unigenitus only begotten of the Vulgate, as though Jesus was the only Son. It means rather that he was unique among others of that genre. He quotes Schillebecks, who says that John's adjective gives us no basis in Johannine theology for the later scholastic theology of procession of the Son from the Father within the Trinity, per modum generationis, by birth. On this evidence, confirmation is secured for the thesis that John does not go beyond the conception Christology of Luke, since sonship in John nowhere implies, despite the patristic view, a sonship in eternity. Furthermore, Mackey argues that it's unnecessary read John's word with a capital W, other than in the sense 
in which Jewish wisdom had already been thought of as God's plan pre-existing. This word, like wisdom, in Proverbs 8.30, was with God in the beginning, and through it, not him, all things were made. Once again, Sheila Beck supports him. Quote, the Gospel of John speaks of Jesus of Nazareth when he appeared on earth. Mackey adds that the descent, so-called, of Jesus, where he said he came down from heaven, this language in John does not involve belief in literal pre-existence. Rather, John means to say that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God's nature. Even the most impressive claim of Jesus, that, quote, before Abraham was, I am, points not to a conscious pre-human life, but to his absolute significance in the divine plan, particularly his messianic office as foreseen by Abraham. Mackey concludes with a strong statement. I quote, if we have any remaining respect for what we too often and too glibly profess to be the normative role of Scripture, we simply may not pretend that Scripture gives us any substantial information about a second divine, so to speak, person with a capital P, or hypostasis distinct from God the Father, and the historical Jesus before Jesus was born, or before the world was made. The warning is a strong one, that the traditional Trinitarian doctrine is not found in the Bible. John A.T. Robinson, the age-old issue of pre-existence, and in particular the question whether John intends us to understand that Jesus was a personally pre-existing divine being, was vigorously debated in the magazine Theology of March and September 1982. For the most useful summary of the modern discussion, one can read Klaas Runia in the book entitled The Present Day Christological Debate. Robinson begins by observing that Wiles and Dunn agree that within the New Testament, only John presents Jesus as having a pre-human existence. Morris Wiles regards this as a disastrous Christological development, undermining the humanity of Jesus and thus encouraging a charge of docetism. Robinson, however, points out that in his epistles, John reacts violently to any suggestion that his Jesus is other than fully human i.e. come in the flesh, to use John's language. This leads Robinson to disagree with Wiles and Dunn that in his gospel, John means us to understand that Jesus was a pre-existent divine being. The discussion thus recalls the problem raised by Paul of Samosata and later by some of the Anabaptists, especially in Poland. Robinson raises the question whether we are reading John as he intended. Are we not perhaps approaching John with spectacles tinged with the later patristic developments in Christology? 
Using Dunn's own caveat, Robinson urges us to understand John's words as his original readers would have understood them. Robinson reminds Dunn that the latter admits that for Paul, Jesus was the expression of God's wisdom, the man wisdom became. For that quote, see Christology in the making. Dunn had conceded that even John 1.14 provides no solid basis for the traditional doctrine of incarnation, with a capital I. In fact, it marks, quote, the transition from impersonal personification to actual person. With this, Robinson agrees. Further, Dunn and Robinson share the view that John's word, with lowercase w, is the utterance of God personified, not a divine person distinct from God. Only when Jesus is conceived does the word, lowercase w, become personalized as distinct from personified. Robinson was unable to agree with Dunn, however, that, quote, the word's pre-existence as a person with God is asserted throughout the Gospel of John. Robinson urges us to confine our understanding of the pre-existing word, even in John, to God's utterance, his power and purpose. The point is simply this. We should see the shift from the understanding of John's word with lowercase w as God's self-expression to the notion that it means a pre-existent divine person. We should see this outside the range of the New Testament. John should not be held responsible for the shift. The shift happened to John when he was misinterpreted by an early Gnostic tendency which left its mark on patristic theology. It does not happen in John. Robinson believes that the word with lowercase w, which was theos, God, as in John 1.1, 1, 1, was fully expressive of God's plan, purpose, and character. That word, lowercase w, became fully embodied in a human person when it became flesh. John 1 verse 14. Jesus is therefore what the word became. He is not to be identified one-to-one -one with the pre-existing word, lowercase w, as though he himself pre-existed. The difference is a subtle one, but has devastating implications for the whole development of Christology. Thus it was not that the word was a person, a hypostasis, who then assumed human nature as well as his own, but that the word was anhypostatic, that's to say impersonal, though fully expressive of God, until it became an individual historical person in Jesus. Jesus, therefore, is a fully human person exegeting or explaining the one God for humanity, as in John 1 verse 18. This reading of John has the enormous advantage of avoiding the dangers 
of a docetic presentation of Christ, as well as a polarization between John and the synoptics, who know nothing of a pre-existent Christ. It further allows the term word, lowercase l, to bear its Old Testament Jewish meaning of purpose or plan or even promise, and Jesus can then be seen as the fulfillment of the ancient promise to Abraham, which is so important for Matthew and Luke. Jesus is God's creative salvation plan or gospel expressed in a human person. The so-called divinity of Jesus is not diminished since, quote, he who has seen him has seen the Father, John 14, verse 9, but it is divinity, so-called, in a sense other than that expressed by Trinitarian orthodoxy. For the divinity is God's activity working in and through a perfectly surrendered human person. Jesus, on this reading, is not God in the Trinitarian sense, but a human person fully expressing God, that's to say, his agent, God's agent for the reconciliation of the world. The wonderful thing that God has done will then be seen in terms of the glorification of a perfectly obedient human person who was genuinely tempted as we are. This portrait will harmonize with the synoptic view of Jesus. Above all, it avoids a presentation of Jesus as a rather less than fully human being who from eternity was himself God. The truth will then emerge that Jesus was, quote, in the form of God, Philippians 2.6. Not that he was God. I quote, God was in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, but Christ was not God. With his intense examination of Scripture, Robinson points the way back to the biblical picture of Jesus as the perfect mirror image of his Father, the Christ whose perfect obedience and sacrifice qualify him to be truly, quote, Son of God. It is to be regretted that Robinson did not confirm belief in the supernatural conception of Jesus, which for Matthew and Luke constitutes the miracle by which the one God brought into being the head of the new creation, the sinless Messiah, Son of God. Francis Young, it is easy to sympathize with those biblically-minded scholars who responded to the myth of God incarnate, written in 1977. It seemed as though the very pillars of Christianity were being shaken. Some of the proponents of the new view of Jesus apparently believed very little of the Bible. John Stott, representing evangelicalism, repeats the orthodox reasons for believing in the full deity of Jesus. He insists that Jesus was a real man, but he does not tell us how exactly 
that can be in view of Leo's term approved by the second Anglican article of 1563 that the eternal son quote took man's nature many have felt that a being who is quote man without being a man is far less human than the man messiah jesus of paul's creed in first timothy 2 verse 5 john stott grants that jesus did not go about declaring unambiguously that he was god nevertheless the so-called transfer of god titles and god texts from yahweh to jesus has an unavoidable implication it identifies jesus as god so said john stott in his book the authentic jesus of 1985 furthermore jesus is worshipped said john stott which proves he is god francis young was among the contributors to the myth of god incarnate it's appropriate to include in this chapter a summary of her remarkable essay called a cloud of witnesses because it represents the feeling of many who have fought for the biblical jesus without subscribing to orthodox christology professor young exposes the weaknesses of traditional views of jesus she complains that the richness of the new testament's christological insights has been obscured by the confession of him as incarnate son of god there's a refreshingly new way of reading the new testament witness to christ as francis young says if we avoid reading the new testament with spectacles colored by later dogma we find emerging a christological picture or other pictures quite different from later orthodoxy jesus was the embodiment of all god's promises brought to fruition such a christology francis young says represents new testament christology better than the idea of incarnation and it was in fact the germ of more and more christological ideas as the whole of the old testament was seen as fulfilled in christ francis young restores the biblical picture of jesus functioning for god without being god i quote from francis young Paul neither calls Jesus God nor identifies him anywhere with God. It is true he does God's work. He is certainly God's supernatural agent who acts because of God's initiative. The author's clear view of the Bible's distinction between God and Jesus enables her to see through the errors of the fathers. She is not persuaded that in the development of Christology, quote, the questions were asked in the right way or the right solutions were found. The orthodoxy which finally emerged was supported by, quote, inadequate argument and distorting exegesis. Understanding Jesus as God incarnate, says Francis Young, 
was dictated by the prevailing philosophical environment. Indeed, there are striking similarities between Neoplatonism's triadic cosmology and the Trinity. Most helpful is Francis Young's criticism of the entrenched idea that only God himself can secure salvation for us and that therefore Jesus must be God. The problem with the orthodox view is that the immutable God is incapable of suffering, temptation, or death. Athanasius' treatment of Jesus' temptation falls into docetism and leads to his apparently nonsensical conclusion that Jesus suffered without suffering. Quote, the suggestion that while the body or the man Jesus suffered on the cross, the Logos somehow suffered in sympathy because it was his body or his man, even though by his very nature he could not possibly suffer. This essay of Francis Young provides a compelling refutation of the comfortable view that the fathers faithfully transmitted the New Testament portrait of Christ, rather their philosophizing led to the, quote, blind alleys of paradox, illogicality, and docetism. George Carey, who subsequently became Archbishop of Canterbury, rose to the defense of the traditional doctrine of the Incarnation in the book God Incarnate, meeting the contemporary challenges to a classic Christian doctrine. The strength of his essay lies in his justifiable protest against the tendency among some of the myth of God Incarnate writers to redefine Jesus in the interest of making him more acceptable to modern scientific man. Carey is rightly disturbed by the denial of Christ's virginal conception, sinlessness, and his resurrection as an objective fact of history. The myth contributors thus undermine the force of their own biblical objections to the orthodox incarnation. Their unfortunate ambivalence about the supernatural, especially the resurrection, inevitably detracted from their well-argued objections to Trinitarianisms. Liberals, so-called, thus often wave a red flag at conservatives. Nevertheless, a so-called liberal may be more objective in his investigation of the Bible since he is less intent than a conservative on defending a traditional system. It is possible to believe firmly in what Carey calls Jesus, quote, special, unique bond with God, without subscribing to the belief that Jesus was God. Even Carey hesitates to call him God outright. He prefers a less direct description of him as, in some form, God. That's from his book, God Incarnate, Meeting the Contemporary Challenges to a Classic Christian Doctrine, written in 1977. The ways thus opened for an understanding of Jesus between the extremes of some of the myth exponents 
and full-blown Trinitarianism. If the new Christology would affirm the supernatural elements of the biblical picture of Jesus, and of course his sinlessness and his resurrection, and if Carey would reconsider the weaknesses of sending so-called language as a proof of pre-existence, a more scriptural Christology could emerge. Jesus must certainly be proclaimed, following apostolic precedent, as the exclusive way to salvation. But the potential of Christians to be, quote, filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19, should balance orthodoxy's stress on the fullness of deity, Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2 verse 9, a fullness of deity in Jesus then was wrongly used as a proof of Jesus being God. Kerry's defense is vulnerable at several points. Where is the biblical support for the creed's claim that he was, quote, begotten before all ages, which Kerry seems to affirm without the backing of New Testament evidence? And why is it clear that God's, quote, sending his son means that the son was alive before his conception. Peter has no thought of pre-existence in mind when he says that God, quote, having raised up Jesus, sent him to preach to Israel. Acts 3 verse 26. Jesus was commissioned to preach, not sent from a previous life. It appears that the standard lexical authorities recognize the weakness of the argument from the word send, while the pressures of maintaining the status quo in Christology may cause expositors to overlook them. In 1990, there appeared in Germany from the camp of Roman Catholic scholarship at its most sophisticated, a full-length study of the issue of the preexistence and the Trinity. The book was entitled Born Before All Time, The Dispute Over Christ's Origin. Karl Josef Kuschel examined the competing Christologies of Harnack, Barth, and Bultmann, and then embarked on his own analysis of the New Testament data. He asks the right questions. I quote, Is the Jesus of history taken seriously? And again, did not the concrete meaning of flesh become a mere abstraction in Barth and Bultmann? He wonders whether either theologian, whose influence has been massive, quote, really understood the New Testament rightly in their portrait of Jesus Christ. Shockingly, as another German theologian, Wolfgang Pannenberg, had said, and I quote, Barth does not primarily develop his doctrine of the Trinity on the basis of exegetical evidence. This echoes the telling remark of Ernst Fuchs that, quote, if there were no biblical texts, Barth's outline would be preferable. Professor Kuschel then examines the role of wisdom in the Hebrew Bible, finding it to be identical to God's creative word, lowercase w, and to the Torah as the blueprint 
which guided God at creation. He argues that the man Jesus is the embodiment of this pre-existing wisdom and not the eternal son who predated his own birth in Bethlehem. Kushal maintains that in Philippians 2, there's no statement about Christ being equal to God. Rather, Christ is the great contrasting figure to Adam. Kushal agrees with James Dunn that there's no pre-existent son in Paul. As for John's Gospel, and I quote, God is essentially never other than the Father of Jesus Christ. He asks why the prologue of John does not begin, as so many instinctively read it, I quote, In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God. This monumental critique of Orthodox Trinitarianism supports our conviction that, quote, the history of the Christology of Jewish Christianity needs urgent investigation, not only for the cause of historical justice, but also for the cause of ecumenical understanding. The dominating theology of the Council of Chalcedon, quote, hardly touches on the earthly life and earthly history of Jesus. Indeed, the relationship between the father and son proposed by the council, quote, would not have been understood by a Jewish Christian like Paul any more than it would have been by John. Professor Kuschel's brilliant study, with enthusiastic approval of Hans Küng, who writes the foreword, alerts us to Trinitarianism's threat to monotheism as well as to its power to erect unnecessary barriers against dialogue with Jews and Muslims. The book Born Before All Time echoes in our time the long-standing tradition of protest against so-called orthodox views of Jesus which seem to suppress his humanity and thus obscure his messiahship. In 1999, a brilliant history of the Trinitarian problem was published also in Germany. Karl-Heinz Orlich's One God in Three Persons, From the Father of Jesus to the Mystery of the Trinity, exposes the tenuous connection of the Bible with Trinitarianism. The author makes the excellent point that Trinitarian dogma has long kept Jews and Muslims at arm's length from Christianity. Ulich breaks a long-standing taboo. He does not resort to vague talk of so-called mystery as an explanation for the Trinity. He gives us a wonderfully succinct and information-packed account of the development of Trinitarianism. He attributes this development to cultural pressures upon the Church beginning in the early 2nd century. He laments the loss of original Jewish monotheism and makes the excellent point that since Jesus was not a Trinitarian, why should his followers be? Furthermore, since Trinitarianism did not emerge in its final form until the 5th century, and was certainly not present in the 2nd century, 
as a dogma about three eternal persons, then which stage in its evolution should be binding on Christians? Ulrich maintains that it is illegitimate historically and theologically to make the doctrine of the Trinity normative for believers. I quote from Ulrich. Theologically considered, the Trinity grew out of a syncretism of Judaism and Christianity with Hellenism and a resulting combination of Jewish and Christian monotheism with Hellenistic monism, that's to say belief in one God. What the theologian thus discovers poses a question to theology about the legitimacy of such a construct. When it is clear, and there is no way around this, that Jesus himself knew only the God of Israel, whom he called Father, and knew nothing about his own later, quote, being made God, what right have we to call the doctrine of the Trinity normative and binding on Christians? However we interpret the various stages of the development of the Trinity, it is clear that this doctrine, which became dogma, so-called, in the East and West, has no biblical basis and cannot be traced continuously back to the New Testament. Gradually, theology must face the facts. Ulrich's observations strongly confirm the findings of an earlier celebrated professor of the history of doctrine who wrote, the apologists laid the foundation for the perversion or corruption, the German word is Verkehrung, of Christianity into a revealed philosophical teaching. Specifically, their Christology affected the later development disastrously by taking for granted the transfer of the concept of Son of God onto the pre-existing Christ. They were the cause of the Christological problem of the fourth century. They caused a shift in the point of departure of Christological thinking away from the historical Christ and onto the issue of pre-existence. They thus shifted attention away from the historical life of Jesus, putting it into the shadow and promoting instead the Incarnation with capital I. They tied Christology to cosmology and could not tie it to soteriology. The Logos teaching is not a so-called higher Christology than the customary one. It lags, in fact, far behind the genuine appreciation of Christ. According to their teaching, it is no longer God who reveals himself in Christ, but the Logos, the inferior God, a God who, as God, is subordinated to the highest God, that's to say, inferiorism or subordinationism. In addition, the suppression of economic Trinitarian ideas by metaphysical pluralistic concepts of the divine triad, the trias, can be traced to the apologists. That's a quotation from Friedrich Lufs in his work Leitfaden zum Studium der Dogmengeschichte, Manual for the Study of the History of Dogma, written in 1890.